This is a CNIB Foundation podcast. The content in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only. It is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. CNIB does not make guarantees about the comprehensiveness or accuracy of the content. CNIB and the podcast participants assume no responsibility for how you use the information provided. If you require legal advice about a specific issue, contact a lawyer or community legal clinic. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Know Your Rights podcast. My name is Jacob Cherendoff and I'm joined by some lovely guests today to, to discuss government issues and consumer related uh, topics on the Know Your Rights podcast. And if this is your first time joining us, um, you're in for a real treat. I think there's a really interesting topic where we discuss um, issues surrounding the topic and have uh, some legal counsel um, providing some insight into how we can know our rights. So I guess to jump right into this, um, you know, I'm joined by Audrey here today, who's who's got a really interesting um, kind of story that I think ties really well into this. So Audrey, welcome to the show. Thank you. So Audrey, um, I understand that you um, have a visual impairment yourself. Is that correct? Oh, yes. I have a visual impairment also, a hearing one. Okay. And You've experienced some some forms of discrimination, uh, and from what I understand, within a, a legal context. Can you tell us a little bit more about what happened? Oh, I went to yeah, I went to see a lawyer to have my will done. We got that all finished up, and then I inquired about getting power of attorney for my younger brother. Well. He said, uh, I don't think we can do that because of your hearing. And, you know, they wouldn't do it for me. So after they said um, that they wouldn't help you, what what course of action did you take? Um, Were you able to get the legal help you needed in the end, or did you have to kind of look for an alternative solution? been looking after my brother for a number of years. I started uh, when my mom got to the point where she couldn't be bothered anymore. And I said, I'd take it on because my other two sisters had their own families. So I think it was about three years when I was still living at home. And then when we moved in here in 94, he came with me and I've had him with me ever since. When the the legal team told you that you wouldn't be able to um, proceed with your request to be the, the power of attorney, what was... I was really upset, but no, I didn't really do anything because uh, I was just too well mad and upset about it. I mean, why would they discriminate just because of that? I mean, what does my hearing have to do with the rest of me? Did they happen to, to give you any information on how your hearing or, you know, impacted proceeding with completing the necessary course of action? Oh, I think it wasn't so much as what he said. It was uh, the impression I got. He think that just because I couldn't hear, I was also, well, if you'll excuse me, don't. I'm sure that was very challenging to hear and upsetting uh, on on many fronts. 
Um, I hope that things were able to be uh, sorted out to some capacity or a not or or another. Um, Keisha, how does this kind of play in? You know, being a lawyer, um, what are the kind of rights that Audrey, um, you know, should have had in this situation um, to be accommodated for, um, you know, completing such a you know a standard application? It's especially troubling, obviously, to hear Audrey's story, um, given that it wasn't someone that doesn't understand the law um, that acted in a way that was discriminatory, but someone who has been legally trained and and should be aware of uh, the human rights protections that Ontarians like Audrey have. Um, So in Ontario, someone with sight loss, but also hearing loss like Audrey has protections under the Ontario Human Rights Code. They also have protections under the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act. Effectively, what that gives you is it gives you protection um, based on a a number of grounds. Disability is certainly one of them, but it could be age. um, It could be a a number of other factors. And so uh, as a client of a lawyer, Audrey is entitled to be treated equally um, and, and to be protected from that kind of discrimination. Also, in terms of uh, a lawyer, I mean, my job is to provide my clients with advice that's tailored to their specific um, circumstances. And so it sounds like there was a bit of a stereotype that Audrey received in terms of because you have hearing loss, you may also have um, some intellectual issues. Um, And and that is a, a common form of discrimination, that kind of false stereotype. I think it's it's such a, a relevant topic. You know, obviously this happened within um, the context of a, a law office, but to take that into, you know, general consumer services and just, you know, your daily life, you interact with people at restaurants, at shopping malls, so on and so forth. And, you know... I mean, being somebody who's visually impaired myself, I've certainly come across it and I've really tried to um, make a habit of taking the, well, you probably don't understand my situation. Um, And I guess that's kind of a good segue into my next question is from a a service standpoint, um, is there a... I guess, a responsibility on the employer to provide that type of training and information to their employees who are, you know, frontline workers, so to speak? Yes, certainly there is. Uh, And part of that is because a business, whether it's affiliated with the government or whether it's a private business like a law office, um, they can be subject, obviously, um, to a human rights complaint. that would be done through the Human Rights Tribunal, HRTO. And it could be against the company. It could be also be against employees. Um, and so some of those fines, uh, whether it's under the act or whether the tribunal orders it, could be either the company or its employees. And so there are um, certainly, like training is one way to avoid those types of misunderstanding. Even if it is a misunderstanding, it can still be discrimination um, where you're treated differently Um, and you face some kind of burden based on that false or different treatment, that would be considered discrimination. For something, you know, of Audrey's circumstance, would a reasonable, um, you know, what would have been a reasonable accommodation um, to, to help Audrey navigate through that situation? I mean, Audrey, were you offered any 
um, you know, an interpreter or um, anybody to help you get through this process by the legal office or anybody you brought in personally? Oh, I had an intervener with me. And when you were at the law office, was the was the legal um, team supportive of you bringing in your intervener? Oh, they kept looking at my IV. I don't think they were so uh, supportive in my case. They seemed to always refer to my intervener. Sorry, you um, you know had to experience something like that. I know that there's a lot of, um, you know, work being done to, as Keisha was saying, um, educate and different policies putting in place so that we can kind of help change that um, for, you know, people living their, the life they, they deserve to be leave, living without discrimination, all of that. So, you know, thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, you know, Keisha, to come back to that point of, you know, was, a, was it a reasonable accommodation to have an intervener in a situation like this? Um, you know, how should have the law firm kind of approached this situation? I'd love to just hear your your insight on this um, and to kind of expand on a general consumer basis. Definitely interveners are a great um, example of an accommodation. Um, and it raises an interesting issue in the legal context because when you hire a lawyer, um, what you talk to your lawyer about is protected by what we call privilege. And so you have solicitor client privilege and what you discuss in that context is totally confidential. And so the lawyer bringing in the intervener is extending that bubble of confidentiality uh, to someone that Audrey trusts um, and someone that she's brought into the meeting. And so she has decided that that person is going to be part of that um, the confidentiality kind of bubble for her. The difficulty, I think, with this scenario is that this isn't an example where a business um, could have done something physical uh, to accommodate Audrey's disability, um, where you get into kind of that duty to accommodate and undo hardship and those um, those kind of um, words that we hear often in the disability context. For Audrey's example, I think um, what strikes me is that as a lawyer, um, we become advocates for our clients and we are really tasked with navigating the way that the laws have been drafted and we look at legal tests and we apply them to facts. And so for something like a power of attorney, it sounds like the lawyer was concerned that Audrey didn't have what we call quote unquote capacity uh, because he was equating her difficulty in being a self-advocate um, because of her hearing loss and her sight loss with uh, an intellectual obstacle. And so that's a, a good example of discrimination. Um, and it came in the denial of services uh, provided to her because the lawyer really misunderstood who Audrey is as a person and, and what she's capable of. In terms of options, I think uh, someone that is being misunderstood by their own lawyer um, certainly wants to raise that with them. Obviously, uh, living with a disability, you become a very good advocate for yourself. And, and sometimes that can be exhausting. Ontario has good resources. The Ontario Human Rights Commission is one of them. And so they create policies and recommendations designed to start addressing some of the issues that exist both as a consumer 
as a student um, and in those other, as a, a, a transit rider and all these other contexts. And so they actually have uh, human rights advisors. There's a toll-free line that you can call to reach the Ontario Human Rights Commission, and they can assist you in navigating how to file a human rights complaint if that's something you're interested in. The Law Society also could be a, a good resource in terms of asking them, what kind of training are you doing for lawyers so they understand the difference really between having sight loss and an intellectual disability, which really are a very two different sides of a spectrum. Yeah, filing a human rights complaint should be um, kind of the absolute last, you know, uh, resource for this. Most of the time, um, you know, these things can be um, typically, um, you know, discussed between the parties or mediated or or some form of that. You know, going to through a human rights claim, I'm speaking through personal experience, is a very taxing, exhaustive um endeavor um, and it should only really be taken if absolutely necessary. Um, so, I mean, the, the last question I have regarding the, the consumer front, and then we'll jump into the uh, the government aspect. And Ryan, thanks for being uh, patient here. I'm excited to get to um, your story in just a moment, is I, I'm I'm wondering how this applies on a provincial basis. You know, our, our viewers and listeners um, are probably going to be from around Canada, if not different parts of the world. Um, we're speaking directly within a, a Canadian context here. But would these, um, I guess, uh, guidelines be different on a provincial basis or is it, you know, nationally, nationally governed on that sense of what is, uh, you know, the consumer um, and uh, duty to accommodate, so to say? Canada does have differences uh, as you venture province to province. Um, one of the, the classic examples of that in the site loss context um, is with guide dogs. And so um, you'll see that certain provinces will have different regulations or rules that apply to guide dogs. Uh, in Ontario, for example, um, that's covered by the Blind Persons Rights Act. Um, and there also are municipal bylaws. Um, and so um, there are good examples of municipalities that have stepped up and said, um, not only are we going to recognize the Blind Persons Rights Act, but if you are in our municipality, um, we are going to make sure that this act and this legislation is followed. So Thunder Bay um, is a good example of that. Toronto is another one where in Toronto, if you are being denied um, access to services because you have a guide dog, you can call 311, which is the municipal line. And a bylaw officer is supposed to be um, tasked with investigating why you've been denied. Uh, there are fines involved with that. It all stems from the Ontario provincial legislation, but you'll see very similar um, legislative schemes in British Columbia, in Newfoundland, and across Canada. In terms of discrimination, when you're talking about um, your rights, um, there obviously is um, the Canadian Constitution. Um, there is also the, the Canadian Human Rights Code. Um, and there is a commission designed to deal with um, discrimination at the federal level. That can get a bit more complicated because it stems from um, the way that Canada is structured in our constitution. And so if you're dealing with a, a federally regulated business, uh, classic examples of that could be uh, an airline, um, a bank, 
those are issues where you would deal um, with your federal rights compared to something more local like a restaurant where uh, a municipal or provincial law might apply. Right. Yeah. And and if, you know, somebody is listening outside of Ontario, what's the best place for people to um, kind of just reference what the um, kind of rules, regulations are surrounding that? I mean, shout out to the CNIB. They do a great job, obviously, of collecting um, legislation, especially uh, around guide dogs, but around um, how the, the legislation changes. Um, there are accessibility um, and um, disability legislation in nearly um, every province. And so it's just a matter of navigating how that applies to you. Uh, that's where pro bono legal advice can be very helpful. Uh, in Ontario, uh, we have a pro bono hotline um, that low-income Ontarians can call and get 30 minutes of free legal advice. Um, I actually volunteered with them yesterday, and so I'm very familiar with how uh, pro bono hotline works and it's a great service. Um, and there are other services like that, whether it's a community legal clinic, um, whether it's the Arch Center for Disability that are also advocates in this area, um, and they can direct you. Yeah, absolutely. We'll put links um, either in the description or somewhere around this um, podcast, just so anybody listening or wants to learn more information about that can reference that. So um, let's segue right into kind of the government side of things. And Ryan, uh, welcome to the to the show. And you also work with the CNIB. Can you tell us a little bit about what your your job with them includes? Sure. Yes. Uh, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. And it's, uh, this is uh, really exciting. So my role is in Ontario West, and I am the program lead of advocacy and accessible community engagement uh, with the CNIB Foundation. So what, what exactly does that mean? What, what are the types of projects that you guys work on? So it's kind of um, a little bit of half and half almost so like I do half advocacy which could be anything from like ODSP to housing advocacy to uh, referring to other organizations that might be able to help an individual with sight loss uh, do some advocacy work uh, could be consumer products it could be transit uh, there's all kinds of different things employment a little bit of employment advocacy that sort of thing and then with the accessible community engagement uh, CNIB has made some great partnerships in the community and in, in the entire country with companies that want to make neighborhoods more accessible. So we do projects where we can introduce beacons into downtown businesses to make them more accessible to for those with a smartphone with blindness. So there's a, a, a ton of different things like that that we're, we are working on uh, and we're going to continue to work on to make uh, not only Ontario, but all of Canada um, more accessible to, to those with a visual impairment. All amazing projects. Sounds like uh, you wear a lot of hats around there, and you guys are doing really great, uh, great stuff to further the uh, the mission of the CNIB. Um, but I guess what really brings you to um, the episode today is the the issue that you've had um, surrounding uh, a health card. Um, and now, Ryan, um, you also have a visual impairment yourself. Is that correct? I do, yes. Uh, I suffer from uh, diabetes retinopathy. Um, so I lost my vision uh, seven years ago. Uh, my retina is uh, just detached overnight kind of thing. I went to bed totally fine, woke up the next morning and kind of couldn't see. Um, I'm 34 years old. I've been diabetic since I was seven. Uh, so um, I'm on an insulin pump. So the health card issue was 
a little bit more than just getting a health card to go get a checkup from the doctor. Um, it had to do with my ADP funding. My I'm on an insulin pump. Uh, I have to get regular blood work for that. So there was a whole host of issues that kind of depended on me having a valid um, health card. And uh, everything sort of just seemed to expire on my birthday this year. Well, that uh, must have been quite uh, quite an experience um, to uh, you know just have such a sudden kind of shift in your uh, your vision. Um, it, it you know it really sounds like you're you know doing really great things for the community and uh, you know uh, hopefully doing really well and hopefully you've gotten a health card since uh, since that situation. So would you mind telling us a little bit more about kind of what the the issue surrounding that was? Absolutely. So um, I guess kind of the nightmare of 2020 continues, right? For, uh, you know, there's a lot of different uh, things that are, that are going on in 2020 that are highly unusual and unprecedented, right? So some of those kind of play a role into my experience with waiting at Service Ontario. So there was obviously a large line of maybe 75 to 100 people. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the new term is social distancing. But with my cane, I, I'm a cane user, not a guide dog user. It's hard for me to social distance. And then I sort of get looks because I either have a friend or um, a colleague from work or someone that's usually there with me. And, you know, when they're guiding me, you you kind of hold the inside of their elbow or maybe uh, the top of their shoulder. And the social distancing aspect is, is kind of out there. Right. So I, I got a lot of comments about that. Uh, first of all, waiting in line kind of thing. And then um, just because of my role at CNIB, you sort of start to notice things um, even when you're not working with regards to um, set up an inclusive design. So um, when, once I finally got to the front door, um, the accessibility button to open the door was actually not even on the pavement. It was on the grass. So if you think in terms of someone that's using a, a power wheelchair, how are they going to get to that button to, to access the door? Um, so that was kind of issue number one was, well, why is this button kind of so far away? Um, issue number two was, um, and I think this just has to do with maybe a little bit of training. There, there's more training needed or more education. I think it's just lack of education. Um, because sometimes I, I really think that uh, the sighted community is just as scared of us as we are of them, right? Uh, talking in terms of the blindness community, they just don't know. They don't want to offend us. They don't know how to ask questions. And, and, and I'm pretty open. So you know, feel free to ask any questions to me about my blindness because it's part of my advocacy hat that that I wear. So once once you get inside, you have the bank teller lines where it's like a zigzag instead of just a straight line up to the counter. So that's hard for someone to navigate with a visual impairment to begin with. Then you add in the social distancing and the the arrows on the floor. I was told several times to follow the arrows on the floor. Um, and I think that's just... Um, the, a, a designed kind of response from the staff there but my cane doesn't detect the arrows on the floor and I can't see them um, and I don't know if there is a safe way to make that accessible other than maybe telling me they're there and maybe telling me I'm going in the right way that sort of thing um, so that was another really big issue um, and then finally once I got to the <laughs> The, the counter, I, I told the, the, the staff member there, I also wanted a, a photo ID card. So it's pretty much a driver's license that is purple and you get no driving privileges, but it's a, a, an Ontario photo ID card. So once we got that all figured out, they hand you the piece of paper and uh, they said, can you sign in the box? 
well, there's another issue because I don't know how big the box is. Um, and again, could be an easy fix. Just get a signature guide, right? You could even cut one out of a piece of cardboard and it would take five minutes and cost you eight cents to make, right? But I can't sign in the box. So I, 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 I didn't know what to do. So there was a big struggle there because the person didn't want to touch me and take my hand and and sort of guide my my pen to where I needed to sign in the box so that the signature shows up on my health card and on my photo ID. Um, I, another thing was getting in front of the camera to take the picture. Uh, so there's, I guess I'll call them footprints. There's footprints that are marked on the floor that someone with vision can see and you stand in the footprints and then you're automatically in the shot. They must have taken, and I'm not exaggerating, eight to nine, maybe even 10 photos of me and they got half my face or the top of my head or my chest or my chin only because I wasn't standing in the right place. And they kept saying, no, you have to move over. Well, I would love to, but what does that mean? Does it mean move over left? Does it mean move over right? Do I have to kind of scrunch? Do I have to move forward three steps or um, do I lean right up against the, the backdrop? There was just a whole host of kind of issues one after the other that um, I guess sort of just happened, right? And it was just, it could have been a lot easier. And I think it, I think really it just came, comes down to education. Um, I, I don't think, I think the majority of public and 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 customer service agents are are polite and they want to help. I just don't think they know how. Yeah, I I, I totally agree with that last comment. But I, I mean, wow, what a what a day you had uh, trying to you know get something that we just all take for granted um, of a health card. I do have to say I've had so many similar issues. Um, with those type of things of trying to figure out on a form where to sign. Um, you know, uh, I don't know if they still do this, but I think they do um, in service, uh, you know, uh, I guess buildings, there's a little screen with numbers and you get a piece of paper. Um, I can't even see those um, screens. So that's always a kind of a stress and I guess, minor anxiety going to deal with anything regarding that. Um, the the lines in grocery stores, I mean, I think you you pointed it out as accessible design. Is, is that correct? That, that would sort of just be the, the accessible building design, right? So like there, there are certain things that you can do to, to make it a little bit more accessible, right? So like for a cane user, um, the zigzag lines aren't an issue, but you have to have, I guess I'll call them legs so far apart like if you have them like 16 feet apart there's no chance of my cane finding that along the ground but if you have them maybe four feet apart my cane's going to find them and i'm like oh okay now i can follow this kind of thing right um and just as you were you were describing something there too it's sort of uh, I, I had a friend with me and um the, one of one of the customer service agents response to me was well your helper can help you well, that's that's a friend, and he he drove me there, and that's great. He is helping me, but it's it's sort of not his job to help me sign the form. Although he would in a heartbeat, or you know, it's not his job to manhandle me and put me into the the square where I need to stand to to take a picture. Right? There should be that. There's got to be an easier way, kind of thing. I yeah, uh, I I totally agree. I've I've gotten the you know your friend, your you know whoever's with you. Oh well, they can just do it for you. And I mean. I, it always bothers me personally, and I'm sure there's a lot of people listening or watching this, kind of thinking to themselves, well, I, I'm an independent, self-functioning you know, person. I don't want to have to rely on uh, someone manhandling. I love the way you put that. I just got a very uh, humorous image 
of your friend trying to put you in that box uh, to take the picture. But yeah, I mean, there's there's so many simple solutions. And I mean, I think we've opened a bigger can of worms um, with that idea of accessible design than intended initially. But I do want to tie that in because I think that when we're talking um, from a government standpoint, uh, and to use our favorite term on this show, the point of undue hardship um, is pretty large. And I don't know if when we start talking about, you know, you mentioned the um, the button to open a door um, being not really uh, accessible, um, you know, from that standpoint, you know, where do these kind of lines start to cross of the, the government being responsible for accommodating, um, you know, not only the blind and low vision or hard of hearing community, but really anybody who requires um, some form of accommodation, be it visible or uh, invisible difference. No, and you know what? I, I think that's really a good point. But I, I kind of think of um, just to play devil's advocate, you know, you can be the glass half full or the glass half empty guy. So with the with regards to the button being in a non-accessible place, I think, and this is going to sound strange, but I think that's really good in some terms, uh, not accessibility wise, but for normalcy, um, because now it's not just for people in it that used a wheelchair right because like almost everybody will go and find that button and hit it and even if they're able-bodied um or uh, even visually impaired um so i think that it's become more normal right just like an elevator traditionally an elevator was oh someone that couldn't climb stairs will use the elevator but now probably most of us if we we're in a normal world in an office building we choose to use the elevator so looking at it in terms of that i think it's it's quite normal and and quite great that there there is the button i just think the placement of it was well let's just put it over here and that's that kind of thing so it's 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 probably not accessible for someone that you know might have to go off roading and it, it just seems like it's it's unreachable and then you know by the time they get back to the door it might already be closing and then and then what kind of thing yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And, you know, the placement is really, I, I think you've very clearly articulated the issue here is if it's not, you know, if it's not serving its full function um, from multiple different perspectives, um, then I think then that's when it presents um, more of an issue. So I guess, Keisha, where where do these kind of lines start to cross? I mean, you know, in terms of, you know, making the, let's, let's take Ryan's circumstance, um, which, I mean, there were multiple, uh, you know, kind of uh, red marks there, you know, how could this be more, more of an accessible process? Um, and, you know, wh where's the government's responsibility to do that? And I think when we say the government, we mean like this is a service Ontario center. Uh, we assume that it's run by the provincial government, although the provincial government has the same obligations uh, as a business would, right? Uh, they're still governed by the legislation that empowers individuals that face discrimination. Under the law where you disclose that you have a disability, there is that duty to accommodate uh, that we talk about. And so as you indicated, that undue hardship, even the, the language that we're using, like hardship implies that it's like absolutely, like it's very high. There's a huge threshold. There would be literal like a pain in, in trying to, to make it easier. And, and that's why you can't do it. Some of the examples that Ryan's describing, that's not undue hardship, right? Like to make 
the posts of the queue closer together. That's something that is just about the design and it's about being inclusive. When we talk about those queue lineup numbers um, that you mentioned, right? Giving people options so that if that isn't an accessible or an inclusive option, that there are alternatives. Certainly, an employee where where it's disclosed to you that you are dealing with someone that has a, a visual challenge or some kind of accessibility concern, they're supposed to begin accommodating you. And so even if it's just like, Ryan, you're going the wrong way, that's a pretty low accommodation, right? To indicate you're you're actually going the wrong way through this lineup. There's no cost to that. It, it really isn't that difficult. I think to Ryan's point, there's sometimes a lot of fear around those those engagements or those discussions. And so for both parties, it's important to kind of to be open to it. But that being said, the burden doesn't only rest on the person that seeks to be accommodated. There's a legal requirement that businesses, especially a, a government service, is accommodating. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'm just, you know, from my from my experience kind of relating to Ryan's, I'm really trying to um, kind of bring this out as well, is with the kind of age of technology that we're in, um, you know, going and um, to a physical location to sign a piece of paper or even to take a, um, a picture of yourself almost seems silly. I just am wondering, you know, is there, you know, maybe room to kind of modernize some of these processes and would that be unreasonable um, to, you know, have, um, you know, maybe Ryan, I'm uh, kind of estimating, guesstimating some of the adaptive technology you may use, but I use a screen enlargement software um, with my computer that allows me to use the computer normally, and I'm able to complete a form that I otherwise couldn't see um, uh, in a hard copy version. And that would kind of um, negate me, you know, having somebody to read it for me, disclosing that I have a visual impairment um, and I'm partially blind, um, which for me isn't an issue, but I can certainly appreciate and understand that that initial disclosure to initiate an accommodation might be uncomfortable for some. I agree with you. And I actually have a, a question. Um, so when we talk about disclosure, I know without muddying the waters too much, it's, it's, it's very tricky, right? But um, in most cases, uh, a person with, a, and I don't want to clump everybody into this category, but a person with a visual impairment, you know, you have a cane, you have a guide dog, the cat's out of the bag when you walk into a building, right? So people can look up and they see my cane. Now, would that classify as disclosure or do I physically have to say to someone, hey, sorry, I, I don't see well, can, can you help me? Yeah, I think that comes back to your point of fear and discomfort um, on kind of uh, both parties. You know, it's just something that is, I think the real kind of um, like sticking, sticking point here is just a lack of, education and um, uncertainty and fear around the subject. I don't use a guide dog. I don't use a cane. Uh, so to the untrained eye, so to speak, um, if I need an accommodation, I'm required to verbally disclose it. Um, and that often triggers people in a different way. 
um, which is, you know, fine. I'm used to it. But I know that there are a lot of people who are probably listening to this that might not have that initial visual cue for others to say this person may require some form of accommodation. Keisha, is there, you know, whose responsibility is to, uh, is it to make that initial disclosure or is that even, you know, something that's been kind of set in stone? I think based on um, both of your experiences, it's pretty clear that there isn't this like typecast. Um, someone that has sight loss or that is blind, um, that's not always visible. And so Jacob, for you, it may be a scenario in which you have to disclose it because someone that looks at you entering the store or entering um, a government service building may not recognize that they have a duty to co- accommodate you. Whereas for Ryan, um, I think it's fair to say that um, if you are relying on a cane, that, um, that the accommodation is pretty clear, um, that uh, your presence is disclosing um, the accommodation that may be required. But even with that, I think you have these varying degrees, right? And so it may be that um, which we know that not everyone um, that uses that support has the same type um, of sight loss. And so um, it may be a scenario in which if it's a, a, an environment that you can't navigate um, and that you haven't been offered that support, that you, that you ask for it and that you disclose it at that time, um, often businesses are proactive. Um, I think we are seeing um, a trend towards more inclusive spaces. Um, but not everything has been done. I think in terms of those like good news stories, 2020 needs uh, some of those good news stories. Um, one of them that I saw uh, on the CNIB website is that um, they've actually called on the provincial government to help um, move the renewal of health cards online. And so right now you can renew your health card online, but only with a driver's license. And so if you are someone um, that has that official ID card that Ryan was describing, um, or if you're someone like Jacob that would far prefer um, renewing your health card online, um, although frankly, so would I, because it's way easier than waiting in line, um, you need a driver's license, which then, although they're trying to be inclusive in moving it online, it may not be their only intention um, in moving it online, but certainly that's a positive side effect you then hit this new barrier of the requirement. And so um, there was a press release um, by CNIB about how they're working with the provincial government um, to, uh, to, to, to consult on that requirement of the driver's license. And I don't know, Ryan, whether that's something you have more information about, but it was something that I read on the website and was glad to see because I think that is a good example of how um, government services can be more accessible to, to every Canadian. It is a work in progress, that's for sure. And like you said, yes, you do have to have uh, the driver's license. As far as I know, unless this has changed uh, since my birthday at the beginning of July, um, you can't even use the photo ID card because the, the, I guess, serial number or ID number on that card differs greatly from your license. So it'll say, oh, you typed in a wrong number because let's say the license number is 20 digits. The photo ID card might only be 10 because there's probably not as many around kind of thing. So um, they, 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 there's some issues there too that uh, hopefully have been resolved and if not, um, will be very soon because yeah, uh, the CNIB is working hard to consult with, uh, with uh, the Ontario government and um, making things a little bit more accessible. I think it's a really great positive step 
in the right direction to make these things, um, you know, accessible and a lot more modern in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, maybe for some people, um, you know, doing it digitally still won't be accessible. We all react and respond to things differently. Um, so having choices and options that fit our needs, um, whether we do have a visible or invisible difference is, is crucial in life to, you know, kind of be a uh, high functioning person as possible. So, I mean, I guess the biggest question that I have for you, Ryan, is how did the picture turn out? <laughs> Do you want to know something really funny? So actually, uh, I, I went for blood work early this morning before I started work. And you're, you're, I hope you laugh at this, but I thought I threw out gift cards and I threw out my uh, health card. So I don't even have the health card that I went uh, all, the, all this trouble to go and get. So I have to either order a new one online. Again, I don't know. This, so this is kind of a, another learning experience. I'm, I'm going to have to either order one online or go through this hassle again. Um, maybe I'll try another location to see if the, the building is set up a little bit better. Um, I'm just, I'm dreading going back to do it at this point if I cannot do it online. Oh my gosh. Well, I hope you were able to pay for your OHIP bill with the Starbucks card that you most likely have. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, let's, uh, to, to just kind of summarize and wrap this up, and, and thank you guys all in advance. Audrey, I really appreciate your, um, you know, your story, and um, I hope that you were able to get the, uh, the information and to follow the process of the power of attorney that you were looking for in the first place. I really hope that's been resolved. Um, and Ryan, you know, um, for providing such, you know, detailed insight into um, you know your experience, and I, I know for a fact that this information is extremely relevant um, to a lot of people in the community. And Keisha, your insight and kind of legal perspective on it just really helps to um, inform people as to you know any questions they may have. Sometimes a little intimidating to you know speak to a lawyer, um, those big bad scary lawyers. I really hope that if you're watching this, you've gotten some great insight. But just to summarize, I think a really key point here is, and we mentioned this earlier, is that depending on where you are within Canada, so on a provincial basis, it's really important to reference um, what the, the rights are. Um, and as Keisha said, CNIB is a really great resource for that, along with everything else that'll be kind of linked um, or outlined uh, somewhere around this podcast. But I mean, Keisha, is there anything that you feel important for our viewers and listeners to know that maybe we've just skipped over or just to reinforce? So I think the takeaway for me, I mean, as a lawyer, I love fighting about things. Uh, I'm an advocate. I'm a problem solver. But that's, um, that's not everyone's cup of tea. And so I think you're right in saying that um, a lot of these issues uh, come from misunderstandings. And so your first option um, is to uh, try sort of a, hey, I'm not sure if you knew this, but um, like these are my rights. Or just kind of gently nudging someone in the right direction as part of that disclosure, as part of seeking accommodation. Um, I think that's, that's always the first step. The last resort um, is consider talking to a lawyer about your human rights. There are a lot of great pro bono services across Canada. Um, and different legal community uh, clinics that can provide you with tailored legal advice that speaks to your experience. 
a lot of this can be misunderstandings and hopefully uh, a meaningful conversation irons it out. But if not, uh, know your rights and know that you could get legal support uh, in terms of litigating uh, a dispute. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I mean, you know, to I think learning about how to what your kind of your rights are is, um, you know, the first step is to self-educate and then to self-advocate. Um, once again, before moving to some crazy lawsuit or anything like that, I mean, it is not something that is uh, ideal in any situation. Um, a lot of the the misunderstandings, um, as you put it, um, can very easily be rectified um, by advocating for yourself or reaching out to um, institutions who can help do that, like the CNIB, like Arch. There's a lot of them. They'll all be linked somewhere around this um, this episode. But I really think that that's the the key point here is learn about your rights. And that's why we're doing this this series, this episode of trying to, I guess, humanize some of these experiences within a consumer front and a a government front that we all interact on a daily basis. And whether you you have experienced one form of discrimination or another, or just feel that you weren't maybe accommodated in the most appropriate way, the best thing you can do is to arm yourself with knowledge on what you what you should be um, entitled to, and I think that that's a really strong point to to reinforce here. Um, Ryan or Audrey, did you have anything you'd like to leave um, our viewers and listeners with? Just thank you for the opportunity, and uh, I'm certainly probably not the first person that's encountered these, and unfortunately probably not the last. But uh, change starts with us. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's one step at a time. And, uh, you know, although you can now get your uh, health card online, you do need to be able to drive a car. So for (laughs) probably including myself, not an option, but one step at a time. Audrey, did you have any um, comments before we close out the episode? I can't think of anything. (laughs) Okay. No problem. Well, thank you all so much for um, you know participating in this. Um, I know uh, there's a lot of value that was given here. So everyone listening or watching, um, we will see you on the next episode. Have a good one. For more CNIB Foundation podcasts, visit cnib.ca slash podcasts.